Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Last week, as we ended the fast, great meal, by the way. You guys brought some excellent stuff, and what a great time of fellowship. And we had another great time of fellowship Wednesday night, our second uh, Wednesday night service. Uh, Pastor Mike brought a great message, and we had a great time. And these, uh, these uh, I find myself looking forward more and more to these uh, Wednesday night, these first Wednesday services. Uh, but we were looking last week, I'm sure you remember, at Abraham and his unique position as God's covenant man, which qualified him to stand in the gap for Sodom and Gomorrah, Right? I made the case as well as I could that the main reason God told Abraham what he was doing, he was heading to uh, bring judgment down on Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, Uh, and the main reason he told Abraham was that so Abraham would intercede for the city. I still maintain that God's desire was to spare the city. Abraham's desire was that he spare Lot, but he was standing in for the city for Lot's sake. But somebody had to stand in the gap because God's justice would not allow him to ignore the great sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. He is utterly and perfectly just, so he must execute justice, but God, in the counsel of his own will, has bound himself to those who are in covenant with him. God's desire is to show mercy, to spare, and he has made man in his image. We are to be his agents and to act on his behalf in the world that he created. Mankind is God's greatest creation, and we are created for what? To glorify him and to enjoy him forever. I find myself in agreement with the Westminster Confession on that. Sin is the problem. Sin is what cuts us off. It pollutes us. It makes us less than what we are created to be. And it, writes, it, it calls out for judgment and results in death. But if a righteous man stands and calls for mercy, God can legally show mercy rather than execute judgment. And how can this be? If God is God and he has determined that a situation calls for judgment, how can any man change God's mind, have any pull, any sway with God? I want to read you Psalm 8. And you can read along. It's not a very long psalm, and there's one part I want you to see, but since it's fairly short, I'm going to read the whole thing. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength, because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. Some translations say a little lower than God. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. I want you to see it in context, but the main thing I want you to see is verses 3 and 4. Don't get hung up right now in the angel thing. Some people say we outrank angels. Some say we're, we're a little higher than the angels, a little lower. Uh, and depending on where you're reading the Bible and how you read this verse, just know this, that the Bible does clearly say that the saints of God will one day judge angels. So 
That's not what I want you to see. Here's this. Let's look at this. Uh, again, verse 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? This is the problem. When most people read this verse, and I'm talking well-meaning, not this group. You guys are head and shoulders above average Bible readers, right, in understanding and wisdom. But there are good Christians who read this and say, see, this is a verse about the smallness of mankind. Just how, and we know more about that today than the psalmist did. We understand things about the vastness of the universe when we look at how many stars we can see. And with just a little bit of binocular amplification or a telescope, you can see multiplied uh, tens of times more objects in the sky. We're gathering just a little more light, a little more light gathering capability. And we can now perform measurements on the distances between these objects and from us to them. And when we consider just how big everything is. Have you ever seen that video? Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it starts with the size of the earth and just how massive the earth is. When you, you can talk about how much it weighs, how you say, how can the earth support this many billions of people? But when you look at the size of the people and the size of the planet, we realize just how big this earth really is. But then you compare it to the sun. And you can get, I think, a million earths inside the sun. And then you expand that to the size of the solar system, how large the solar system is. So you get to the edge of the solar system, the sun just looks like a bright star. And that's just our solar system. And then the size of the galaxy. And then you look at, find individual stars in the galaxy that are to our sun as the sun is to our earth. These gigantic bodies out there in the heavens. And then multiplied millions, even billions of galaxies. And when we consider that God made all that, and what does the psalmist say? The work of his fingers. What is man that you would take thought of him? We are dust. This is what, you know, the, the, even leaving psalms out of it, this is what the you know, guys like Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson, all these uh, gurus of, of astronomy and physics say, see, really, in the vast ocean of existence, we are nothing. We're just a, a piece of dust floating in all this emptiness. That's not what the psalmist is saying. He's not saying, how can you, the God who spans the heaven with his fingers, who created it all, how can you lower yourself to such a degree that you can even notice a piece of dust like me? That's not what the psalmist is saying. Is saying. He's saying, if you take mine, take thought of me, a man, if you visit the Son of Man, then we must be something awfully significant. Because you're the God who created the heavens with his fingers. And if you can do all that and still visit me, that says something about me. What is man? Man is something. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. We were the only ones who were created in his image to, to be his agents and to do his will. God is the one with dominion. All the earth is the Lord's. But what does it say here? He's put all things under our feet. 
David's writing this long before the cross. He's talking about man as a created being. We were created to have dominion over the beasts and the fish and the birds. We're to be the bosses of this planet. God has made us capable of that. We are something. And that's mankind in general. God is concerned with all of us. But when we respond to him and enter into a covenant with him, which we do now through the cross, it puts us in a position where in our conversations with him, our requests of him carry weight like Abraham. The word of God tells us that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. We have to be righteous to be in that, to have that kind of pull with God. And you think, well, nobody can be that righteous. It was counted. God gave, was able to call Abraham righteous because of his faith. So now there's a righteous man to intercede. And uh, also, as we'll see this morning, it was similar with a man named Moses. Now, I'll bridge the gap here briefly. Uh, we remember from last week, I think you remember, that during the covenant-cutting ceremony, uh, when Abraham had this vision of the smoking lamp walking between, you can read about it, Genesis, if you want. It's pretty interesting. But it was during this ceremony when God was speaking to him, he caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep, and he told him what was going to happen. He already told him he was going to give him this land. He already told him he was going to have descendants, and God starts to give him some details. And one of the things he tells him is that your offspring, your descendants are going to be uh, in a strange land. They're going to be strangers and be afflicted in another land for 400 years. All right? Go forward a little bit. Abraham and Sarah, of course, bring Isaac into the world. Isaac and Rebekah produce Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, through Leah and Rachel, uh, brings forth the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 sons who become the head of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons, Joseph, is sold into slavery, winds up in Egypt, and even though he winds up in prison, God honors him because he continues to honor God and God elevates him. Joseph distinguishes himself as somebody who can interpret dreams, hear from God. He is brought before Pharaoh, and through a series of conversations and uh, dream interpretations, he is elevated to essentially prime minister. He is second in the kingdom only to Pharaoh, and during a, a drought, during a famine, uh, Jacob sends Joseph's brothers to buy grain in Egypt. They are reunited. I, this is making a, not a super long story, but a longer story short. Uh, the upshot is Jacob and all his family, seven in all, are, uh, 70 in all, are invited to e Egypt as royal guests. They settle in the land of Goshen. They prosper there. They multiply there. They become a numerous people over the course of, guess what, 400 years. But also because they grew so fast and did so well, they began to be afflicted by their Egyptian hosts who then became their Egyptian masters. And then, after all this time, they began to cry out to God. Somebody remembered, didn't God give us a land at one point? And he raises up Moses to deliver them out of Egypt back to the land that he gave to Abraham 400 years prior. Okay? Now, Moses ends up standing before Pharaoh telling him the story, look, these are, these are God's people. They don't belong to you. Uh, let them go. And Pharaoh digs in his heels. And then we see an extraordinary outpouring of God's power, taking uh, the form of these awesome plagues on the land. And the final plague was the death of the firstborn 
in all of Egypt, except for those where the house had been, uh, where blood had been sprinkled in the doorway of the house. And the death angel passed over those houses. This was the origin of the Passover, right? And then finally, the, the, the great, the, uh, the climax of this story is when they are, when Pharaoh changes his mind, even after letting them go, after all this tragedy, he lets them go, and then he's like, no, I'm not going to let them go. Sends the army after them. Israel comes up against a body of water called the, just see if you're still listening, the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit. Already the, uh, the Israelites are crying out, what do we leave for? What do we leave for? Uh, Moses puts his staff in the water. The waters divide. They walk across on dry land. Here comes the army behind them on dry land, and the waters cave in on them and drown them. And then they are well and truly free. All that to say, it's important that you heard that because this generation had seen some stuff. You and I have seen some stuff, but we've heard a lot more. We read about this stuff that Israel went through. All those people, this wasn't over the course of centuries or even decades. This was over the course of months. They saw God do all this stuff for them. That's important. So, it wasn't long after that, that once, the, once they're free, once Pharaoh's army is no longer pursuing them, that he camps them out at Sinai to give them the law. This God that they knew about, they were going to get to know as God revealed himself by the law. So God uh, calls Moses up to the mountain, gives them the law, and Moses goes back down it recites the law to the people and then goes back up to, to receive it in detail. I, I point out that detail. You can read it through. It's not confusing. You don't have to dig. You just have to see it happening in order. Uh, because I read some bizarre article by some, uh, some young, I won't say what church he was at, uh, not, not somebody I know personally, but I, I do know what denomination he was affiliated with, and I don't want to cast aspersions on the denomination because of one idiot. But he was saying... That, because you know what's where I'm, you probably know where I'm going with this. What happens while Moses is up on the mountain? The people get impatient. They start wondering where Moses is, and they tell Aaron, hey, we don't know what happened to Moses. He might not be coming back. Why don't you make us some gods that we can worship and move on? Good idea, right? Now, it's it a horrible idea. And, and Aaron, being the good, strong, priestly leader he was, said, no, people, we can't do that. No, he says, okay, bring me your earrings. Bring me your jewelry. We'll throw them into the fire and we'll mold. And he makes these, this golden calf. And uh, Moses is up on the mountain with God. God has to tell Moses what happened. We'll get to that story in a minute. My whole point is there was judgment that happened. And this, this guy writing the article said, here's the problem. God was punishing people for breaking a law that they didn't have yet. Because we know that when Moses does come down the mountains, he's got the Ten Commandments because he smashes them on the ground. And he has to go back up and get another copy. But God had written, literally, God had written this, this copy, and Moses was going to have to take dictation on the second copy. But the whole, his whole point was, if they didn't have the Ten Commandments till Moses came down from the mountain, how were they violating God's law by having the golden calf? Because Moses had told them the law. They didn't have it written down. But the first commandment is what? Have no other gods before me. The second one is no graven images for the purpose of worship. And they were 
so when they have these golden calves, I guess you could say, well, they still believed in Yahweh. They still believed in Jehovah. They just wanted a physical representation. That's being really, really lenient with your interpretation of what happened. And even if it's true, they were in clear violation of the second commandment. So right off the bat, at this, remember, this is the generation that had seen God do these great things. They should have immediately responded to everything God said. And it wasn't hard to remember these things. And Moses told them, no graven images. And everything he told them when he came down, by the way, just to recite the law, do you know what their response was? All that God has said, we will do. When you're reading the, uh, through Exodus, highlight every time you hear them say that, every time you read them saying that through, through, the, their, through all their wanderings. They say that a lot. Oh, yes, we will do everything. And they didn't do practically anything God told them to do. Anyway, uh, here's the point. God was aware of this. Let's, let's read it from this account. You need to see some details. And I am in Exodus 32, beginning in verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt and they have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, and these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now, Leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against <clears throat> your people whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out? To kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever." Then the Lord relented and did not bring upon his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, we're going to look at another passage very similar to this in a minute. But how does this strike you? You see God righteously enraged at what has happened after everything I've shown them, and not just everything I've shown them, which, by the way, is more than anybody else has seen, in terms of his power and his, his uh, will to deliver them and fulfill his promises, but everything he's told them explicitly. And they would still do this in, in relatively no time. After all this stuff, and now you're really, you're going to make a molded calf and say, this is the one that brought you out of Egypt? You know this is not the one who brought you out of Egypt. And he's like, I, I'm, and they're stiff-necked people. He had reason for saying that. You go back and read this. Go read the, even the early days of the Exodus. Uh, they just, they complained about every little thing. No matter what God did, they just had a hard time believing God could do anything else for them. Uh, they were stubborn. They were stiff-necked indeed. And God says he's going to destroy them. And Moses just, what's he doing? Soothing God's ruffled feathers? Oh, God, God just calm down. Take, take a breath. 
Count to ten. No, don't count to ten. That'll remind you of the Ten Commandments, and you'll get mad all over again. Count sheep, okay? Count sheep. Uh, They're there. They're there. Okay, all right, all right. And God just calms down. That's not the way it worked at all. What's God doing? He is expressing his righteous prerogative to execute justice, but looking for the opportunity to show mercy. How can he show mercy when the situation calls out for justice? Somebody has to intercede. A righteous man, a friend of God. Now we know Moses had a prayer relationship and a face-to-face relationship. God said this. God said this to Aaron and Miriam. Hey, look, anybody can call on me. We can have interaction. I just want you to understand there's a difference with me and Moses. I'll speak to you through the priests. I'll speak to you through events. I'll speak to you a number of ways. I speak to Moses face-to-face. And he actually says mouth-to-mouth. I speak to Moses like a man speaks to his friend. There was, again, a unique relationship between God and Moses. So it took a Moses to stand in the gap. Now, and here's Moses' argument, and it's beautiful. It's not, oh, but I like being a leader of these millions of people, and I don't want to be the failure here. No, he says, God, if if you destroy these people out here, it's going to destroy your reputation among the Egyptians. They're going to laugh and say, aha, he did all this stuff, and he, he couldn't even save his people. They'd have been better off staying here. It's going to look bad. And by the way, this wasn't my idea. You notice how God called them Moses' people, and Moses called them God's people. These are your people, Lord. You're the one who did this, and this is the best part. This is the part and if you're reading this in a vacuum and you don't know how the story ends or maybe you're brand new to this, you might, it might look like Moses argues God into a corner and he says, okay, I'll forgive him this time once. No, God is smiling ear to ear when he hears this part. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You gave the promise to them. You're the one that told them you were going to multiply them. We're starting to get there. They are, they are greatly multiplied. They continue to multiply. But you told them you'd give them the land you gave, that you showed Abraham. It's your promise, God. It's your word that's on the line. Now, you have to understand, God still could have wiped them out and done what he said. I'm still going to multiply the descendants of Abraham and give them this land. I'm just going to start all over with you. I've got all the time in the world and more. But this is not what God really desired to do. What's his heart? to spare, to show mercy. But somebody had to invite him directly into that uh, moment and expressly, explicitly ask him for that mercy. And how did he do it? By begging? No, but by putting God uh, in mind of his promises. That is the essence of a faith-filled prayer. God, you said this. This is what I'm asking you for. All right. It's pretty good, huh? All right, it gets better. I don't mean I'm pretty good. I mean, this is, this is a good story. This is a good word. Now, let me skip up to this thing. Now, <laughs> several months have passed. A lot of adventures. Uh, just, uh, and, 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 they'll, and they'll have many more, but uh, they have... Um, They have continued to see God work on their behalf. And now they're literally on the border of the land of promise. 
the River Jordan, right? This is the whole reason God brought them out of Egypt to give them the land he had promised Abraham 400 years before. And here we are after nearly a year. We are here. We are on the verge. All we got to do is cross, in, cross the river, enter Jericho, destroy it, and then begin to inhabit the land that God has given us. To bring them to this moment is why he had done the plagues in the first place, uh, the miracle of the Red Sea, a lot of other stuff you can read about in Exodus and Numbers. He had provided food and water for them miraculously. He had been a visible presence in the form of a cloud by day and a fire by night. And now, literally at their destination, they decide that it can't be done. The people of Jericho and the land in general are too big, they're too strong, they're too numerous. And they can't go in. And can you imagine again? God's exasperation. After all he had done, everything, every way he had demonstrated his power, everything he'd brought them through, and they say at this point, again, the whole reason he had done all these things, they get there and they say, ah, we can't do it. And it even gets so bad, they start to rumble against Moses and say, let's elect a new leader who will take us back to Egypt. This was their solution. After everything they had seen God do, they get over there and say, too scary, too hard, let's go back. Who's taking us back? And what's God going to do? Here's what he does. He's not pleased. In Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. <laughs> By your power, you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They've already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all, pull all, these, pe put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. The land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them all in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just of you as, as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Don't get hung up on that right now. I don't have time to address it, but we will someday. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Verse 20, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. If you read on, you'll find out that a certain segment of that society, a large segment, did not get to enter the land of promise. The point is, God did not destroy them. He did not wipe them out. Just like Abraham and Sodom, it's, if God's true plan and purpose was to wipe them out, why not just do it? Do we really imagine God losing his temper and needing Moses to calm him down? Of course not. We know better than that. The only reason God told Moses that he was going to do this, that he wanted to do this, was because he knew Moses would intercede. The children of Israel, their, their lack of faith, their disobedience, 
uh, were in a sense unforgivable after all they had seen and experienced. But God's heart is forgiveness. His heart is mercy. But this is a situation that calls for judgment. And think about it. Look at what God is saying to Moses. He's not saying, I give up. Forget it. I can't deal with these people anymore. No. He's just saying, again, I got time. Forget these guys. I don't need them to fulfill my promise. I'll start with you. And what an honor. I mean, you have to ask yourself, if God said that to you, what would you say? But Moses had God's heart. They're not my people. They're your people. And this is your promise. God's plans were not frustrated by Moses in passion, please. They were solidified. They had, he had a man who would put him in mind of his, of his promises, stand on them, and through legal agency, based on his relationship with Moses, give him the opportunity to show the mercy that he was by nature inclined to show in the first place. Now, where does this leave us today? We as believers are God's agents. And God is not willing that any man should perish. But God is still just. And judgment has to be passed. Let me kind of interrupt myself here to say that this is the problem I have. Whenever there is a tragedy, and Lord knows there are plenty, whether it's a man-made tragedy like a mass shooting or whether it's a natural disaster like a hurricane or a flood or something like that, uh, unfortunately... Uh, if you look, and many times you don't have to look very hard, there'll be some preacher, well-known or otherwise, who will say, well, the reason this happened is because of the sin that was in this community. This is a community, this is a land, or this is a nation that has embraced too many things that are against God, whether it's abortion or homosexuality or anything like this. This is God judging. Or, uh, if, if they want to play it safe, they'll say, this is just... They've, God is allowing this to happen. He's removed his protection, but basically saying this is what happens when we forget God. Now, is there an element of truth to that? Yeah, but we might as well face it. This whole earth is groaning under the weight of sin, and rain falls on the just and the unjust. Our and what's unfortunate about that is when we hear that or when we hear these reports, there is a, there's still, I, I maintain in all of us, and in some, it's more obvious. Some people are more, more vocal about it. But there's just a little bit of smugness in us. Maybe just a tiny bit that we have to keep an eye on when something like that happens where we'll say, well, that's what they get. They had it coming. If they hadn't been in that particular bar, they wouldn't have been the, among the ones who got shot, etc. My views are vindicated. Because sin brings disaster and judgment. Well, duh. We know what sin is, right? And again, the whole earth is groaning under the weight of it. But what is God's heart? What is God's desire? What, does God delight in the death of the wicked? Why do we? Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? 
sin and consistent refusal to follow God results in death. But God is not taking the tone of, reject me, will you? I'll show you. No, it's pleading with the people. I can't pretend your wickedness isn't the, hor- the horrific thing that it is. I can't pretend that you are not wicked. And wickedness demands judgment and leads absolutely to death. So turn from it. Turn and live. God desires repentance, and that gives him the opportunity to bestow mercy in his justice. Knowing that you and I, as covenant children, uh, uh, we should always be standing in the gap for those who have not yet cried out for God for mercy, cried out to God for mercy. We stand on his promises to rescue, to save everyone who calls on his name. And we ask him for one more chance to share the gospel with those who have not yet called out. A couple things and then I close. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter's addressing the concern that Jesus has promised to come back, and some people are like, well, when? We all thought this was going to happen soon. Why hasn't he come back? Doesn't he see all the bad stuff that's happening to us? And Peter is assuring them that the reason God is waiting is not to test them and not to see them suffer, but to stretch it out so that every person possible will have the opportunity to call on his name and turn to him. And the other thing is this, as difficult as it might be to believe, you and I have greater standing with God than Abraham and Moses. Do you believe me? It's true. Righteousness was credited to Abraham who believed. Moses was elevated to this position of leadership and a relationship with God because he believed, because he was humble. But none of them could literally be made righteous. Abraham was a sinner. Moses was a sinner. But salvation was given to them on credit. You and I, living 2,000 years after the cross, the righteousness that we are credited with, God actually clothes us with. It's the blood of Jesus. This is a done deal. All those sacrifices that became part of the law in the Old Testament were just symbols. They were signs of what God demanded, of what, and they were pictures of what sin did. But the blood of lambs and, and bulls and goats could never cleanse us, but the blood of Christ does. This puts us in a position where we have some pull with God. If Abraham had pull, if Moses had pull, we have pull even more. We just have to recognize that. That is, if we are in Christ. Listen, God knows what you are made of. He knows our failures. But when we surrender our lives to Christ, he places us in him so that we can exercise authority over the sin in our lives, so that we can walk and live in victory, and so that we are, and so that we are qualified to intercede for the lost. Live the gospel. Preach the gospel. Walk out what you've received and share it with others. Receive it and give it away. The good news is not in short supply. As Christians, we can be a little self-centered. There's, there's, a, there's a few ways of looking at this, and none of them are wrong in and of themselves, but we can focus so much 
and this is uh, where we as Word of Faith people are probably more prone to error if we're not careful. We read about the blessings, we read about the promises, and our whole Christian life becomes about confessing and believing and receiving, and all those promises are in there. We just kind of forget that it boils down to what Pastor Mike uh, has said for years. Why are we blessed? To be a blessing. I'm healed to be a healer. I'm provided for so that I can provide. Everything God gives me, he gives me for you, for somebody else, and ultimately for the world to make me a minister of the gospel. Uh, So we can become self-centered in those promises. A second way we can respond is uh, we can hunker down and pray for his soon, soon return. It's like, ah, it's all getting worse. I can't stand it. I don't, want to be, I don't want to mix too much with the world because I'm afraid I'll get stained by their sin. Uh, and it's dangerous out there. Persecution's getting much. Let's just gather as a Christian community, stay together. Again, hunker down and pray, pray, pray that he gets here soon. Now, I get it. We do need Christian community. We do pray for protection. Why not? Nobody, we're going to, we need to seek out persecution to please God. It's going to come. It's going to happen anyway. Um, and in one sense, we should be. I mean, the, the Peter did, Paul did, that come quickly, Lord Jesus. Our heart's desire should be to see him as soon as possible. But another way we can respond is this. We can pray for one more minute, one more day, one more week, one more month, one more year to share the gospel one more time with one more person. If our heart is God's heart, that's what we're praying for. We're going to see him. He's not going to abandon us. He'll be back for us, and it's going to be great. Meanwhile, am I willing to get out of this mess? Am I willing to chuck this world and leave it all behind at the expense of somebody who has not been reached? Or am I willing to stick around for the sake of God's heart for the lost. Say, what can I do? This is where, this is the part I want you to hear what I was referring to at the beginning of this service. Back in the Exodus episode, Moses, you know, he went down there. He talked to the people. This is a grievous sin. Ground it up into powder, made them drink it. Uh, There were some other things he did discipline-wise. And then he came back up to God, and he said, "Uh, Lord, you're right, it's bad. There's nothing I can say to mitigate, mitigate the greatness of their sin. But if you're going to wipe them out, you'll have to wipe me out too. I'm committed to them. It's It's a pretty bold stand. And God's not going to wipe out the righteous with the wicked, Right? It's a passage that needs exploring because of that conversation that took place there. But I only bring it up now because it's a picture of what Jesus did. Moses, though he indeed had a a unique relationship with God and God was able to get him to intercede for Israel, could not save Israel even by dying. One man could only stand in for one man. And every sinful man, the only man you can can receive judgment for is yourself. Moses was willing to stand in, in the gap there. But Jesus... As the Son of God, he is enough. In essence, he's enough to stand in the gap for all of creation because he's worth more than all of creation. Only when Jesus was on the cross, God did not relent. He did not turn away from executing judgment on sin. 
All of your sin, all of my sin, all the world's sin was placed on Jesus at that moment. Jesus is standing between mankind and God's judgment. And God, instead of like with Moses, instead of uh, like with Moses twice, where he says, all right, I forgive him. I'm going to turn away from doing this. This time he unloaded all that judgment fell. Only instead of falling on you and me who deserve it, it fell on Jesus. The good news is that all your sin, you're you're worried about judgment? Your sin has been judged. The bad news is, not you, unless you are, if you are not in Christ. If you have not made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, then you have not availed yourself of that truth. You will bear the punishment and the judgment for your sin. Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. How do you think it's going to be? You stand up. Go ahead and stand up. How do you think it's going to be when you stand before God one day and admit to him that you refused that sacrifice? Assuming you've heard it, you've heard the gospel, Assuming it's been presented in an accurate enough way for you to understand that the only way to salvation is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he says, why did you refuse it? What are you going to say? I just really didn't think I needed it because I'm a pretty good person. My righteousness is enough. And God will respond, if your righteousness was enough, Do you think I would have put Jesus through what I put him through? Maybe, and this is probably closer to the truth for a lot of people, and I'm not saying we would ever have the guts to just say it out loud to God like this, but here's what we're thinking now. I don't want you ruining my life by ruling over me. I am my own person. I will seek my pleasure. I will do what I want. Yeah, they told me you loved me. And I can kind of see that. But if you really loved me, you'd just let me do what I want. That's the other beautiful thing about this story. Everything that Israel did that made God mad, this was not God being petty. Hey, I gave you a bunch of arbitrary rules just to see if you'd follow me. And you're not doing them. So I'm going to judge you. The rules he gave them, the laws he gave them, the commandments he gave them were for their good. And to keep them on track to the place he was bringing them. Where was he bringing them? To a land of giants, to a land of enemies. Only if you saw it through their eyes. If you saw it through God's eyes, what was it? It's a land of milk and honey and vines and crops and livestock that was theirs. God was giving it all to them. The thing that made God mad, or I like the word exasperated better, is that I am leading you to the best thing for you. If you will follow me, you will see that. 
I'm mad because every time you disobey me, it takes you off course into a future that I did not plan for you and will result in disaster. I don't want that for you. It's like a parent watching a kid make bad choices when you know they have a bright future or at least the potential of a bright future. And it might look like, oh, you're just mad because uh, uh, I don't do what you say. No, I'm mad because I see you throwing away a good future. Now, we as believers can enjoy a good now because God is real, because Christ has died on the cross, because he has given us victory and provides, uh, causes us to triumph and provides for us and heals us. The best life possible for you right now is life in Christ. It is the most joyful, meaningful life possible for you right now. But guess what? There is something better for us on the other side of this life. He's taken us someplace. We want to stay with him. People, I want to say this to the believer first. You are powerful because of your position, because of who God has made you. He's gifted us in different ways. But I want you to know positionally, you have an immense responsibility because you have more pull with God than Moses had, than Abraham had. What are you doing with that pull? Are you seeking the people for the kingdom? Are you, are you calling out to God, give me an opportunity, open doors, bring me across the path of somebody who hasn't heard? Show yourself to this person. If I'm not the, or if, you know, you want to pray to be used, but you also want to pray for people that you love, and maybe you're not the right person to reach that person. So we say, oh God, I know you love that person. Will you bring somebody across their path who they'll listen to? And maybe they do something that makes you mad. Maybe an organization, a politician, a government, somebody does something that makes you mad, and God says, hey, they've sinned against me too. Stand here with me, buddy, and I'm going to destroy him." And we'll say, yeah! And we say, no, Lord, Show yourself merciful for my sake. I'm the one they hurt. And I'm asking you, in your mercy, and remind you, keep them in his word. You love them. It's not your desire that any should perish. Spare them for my sake. For your sake. Yeah. Because you're in Christ. And if you understand that when you make that request, because you are in Christ, you are saying, do this for Jesus' sake. Talk about somebody who has pull with the Father. How about the Son? You are important. You are powerful in prayer if you see yourself for who you are. Don't squander this moment. Yes, receive the blessings. Believe for the blessings. But don't squander this life just piling up the good life. Make sure you are making a difference in somebody else's life. Amen? In case there is an unbeliever here, and by that all I mean is, you say, we talk about all this person, all the, the, if you're in Christ, how do I know if I'm in Christ? If you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, that's you. If you haven't, then you're not. Not only does that mean your prayers have no weight, not only does it mean you're running this risk of uh, uh, getting off, uh, off of God's path for you, and not enjoying the life he has for you now, but ultimately it means hell. Hell is a real place. It's a real destination. He doesn't want anybody there. I certainly don't want anybody there. 
Do you want to waste another day figuring this out? Or you don't, do you want to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ today? Because if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And once you're saved, you get put into that camp of people who are righteous and powerful and qualified for every blessing that God promised. Because all the requirements necessary to qualify for all those promises and blessings were fulfilled at the cross. Will you make that decision today? I'm going to pray a quick prayer. And as soon as I'm done praying, we're going to go out with a song. As soon as they start singing, you come up here and let me lead you in that prayer of salvation. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for making us powerful. Thank you for bringing us into this vital role of prayer, of intercession, standing in the gap for the lost. Never let us lose that fire. Never let us lose that focus. Help us to keep our eyes on the prize. Keep us in the center of your will, Lord God, and use us in these last days, whether there is one day left or a century left or a millennium left. We want to be found doing the work that you've called us to do, expressing the love that you did from the beginning of time. Father, right now it's my prayer. I know I'm joined in faith by the prayers of every believer in the sound of my voice that if there is an unbeliever in the sound of my voice, that you would convict them, that you would cause them to know the danger they are in, that you would cause them to know the love you have for them, the plan you have for them, the good life and future you have planned for them, and spark in them the courage, the wisdom, the boldness, and the humility necessary to come and receive that free gift of salvation today. In Jesus' name, all the believers said, Amen. God bless you as you come. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.